we used to talk about this all the time. Like, what's your opening line? And we would go back and forth on a lot of stuff. Um, for the longest time, my favorite was, I'm here to talk to you about coming out. Knowing that they're going to respond, I ain't coming out. Now, my next line, which, and, and that's all I'm scripted is, I know you're not coming out now. I just want you to know that when you do, we're going to make sure that you feel treated with dignity and respect. And I got to make sure you don't get hurt. Chris Voss, welcome to the show. Tom, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Dude, I'm really excited to have you on. I, I'm actually a little shocked at myself that we haven't had you on sooner. I find your book, Never Split the Difference, absolutely incredible. Thank and you. where I wanna start, so I think I'm a terrible negotiator, so let's start with that. Right. We will definitely today cover some of the principles of that, but what I really wanna talk about is in the book, when you're talking about some of the scenarios that you were in, where people, it's a life and death situation, right. and you're the line of defense, how do you deal with that emotionally? Like that's, my job feels high stress, but that's, no one's life is on the line. How do you deal with that? Yeah, well, there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, you just don't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when you first started, but not long-term. Uh, you know, training in the FBI, they started out really good. Um, I mean, they hit you, uh, you know, with the Tyson uh, line. Everybody has a plan until they get punched. Like the second day of the negotiation training in the FBI, they hit you square between the eyes with something really hard. Like a real story or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they spent, they spent the first day laying out a philosophy, which if you understand the nuances of the words, I still completely agree with. A hostage has never been killed on deadline in the United States, ever. And so, like, you get kind of comfortable and you got a sense that negotiation's pretty successful overall. I mean, in reality, it's about a 93% success rate. Whoa. And then, and then the very next day, they present a scenario where it looks like a hostage got murdered right on deadline, right in front of everybody. And you just like, I mean, you were hit in a head. Can I use the words you use in the book? Because this was when I realized I don't want your job or the one that you had back then. You said she was shot twice in the back with a shotgun. It right. almost cut her in half yeah. as she flew through the glass window. Yeah, in the, and I in thought, the God damn. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I'd find a way. But Chris, I don't know how I'd come back from that. Like, that would, that be, would damage me in ways that I can't imagine. Well, that, that ends up kind of getting into a secondary characteristic because then when I was running a program, I went out of my way to look for negotiators that had been involved in a siege where somebody got killed and they bounced back. Mm. You know, typically with a success rate that, that's that high, if any time you're under less than double digits of a job, sieges, whatever you want to call them, probably everything you touch is going to turn out good and you're going to get a little overconfident. And then once you start climb past double digits, I mean, odds are starting to run against you. And what happens with pretty much every time is the negotiator will be like, you know, I, I didn't get into this to watch people die. I'm going to find another thing to do. Or they're going to say, I'm never going to let this happen again. And those people will double down and they'll be more courageous in speaking truth to command whether it be an ambassador or an on-scene commander, and basically saying, like, no, we can't do it like this. I Were don't you care ever you involved think, in an operation this. where somebody got killed? Yeah. So how did you 
How did you, did you need to put yourself back together or do you not react like that? Let's start with that question. Um, I've been uh, repeating one phrase in my head for a long time leading up to that, that I didn't really realize what it meant. My old boss, Gary Nessner, used to always teach us best chance of success. What we're doing is the best chance of success. And so then when uh, the Burnham Sabero case in the Philippines, a lot of people got killed. And finally- Give us a quick breakdown, uh, what happened? Um, uh, Gracia and Martin Burnham and another American citizen named Guillermo Sabero got scooped up in a dive resort in the Philippines in a region of the Philippines everybody thought was completely safe. Now the bad guys, the Abu Sayyaf, were looking for Westerners. There'd been a siege earlier in the same year in another part of the Philippines where they looking for Americans and Westerners. They got nothing but Western Europeans. And they ultimately, that, that case was a train wreck, which I was not involved in because there were no Americans there. And the bad guys ended up scoring about $20 million as a result. Oh. Which made a rival gang jealous of the score. So they go out and they do an even more daring raid. They cross like 400 miles of open ocean on these lousy little boats, scooped everybody up in a dive resort, ended up getting three Americans and a bunch of Filipinos. Um, Sabero ends up getting murdered by the, the terrorists about uh, three-ish weeks in, 21-ish days. How does the siege go on for that long? Oh, this thing lasted 13 months. So, Oof. yeah, that was, just, that was just the beginning. That wasn't even op the opening act. <laughs> so, and they, did they kill them to make a point, to just prove, like, we're serious? Well, you know, they were uh, Western American arrogance, if you will. When Sabero finally got killed, or got killed early on, you know, there had been Filipinos, the bad guys were killing the Filipinos regularly. Like, it was Ooh. no big deal. And I can remember at that point in time when we tried to stir up a little outrage over it, I thought, you know, we have sat here and not really said much at all while these Filipinos are getting beheaded. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, we want everybody to be bent out of shape. And I remember thinking, like, if I, if I was a host country, my reaction would be like, oh, now it's important to you? So, um, but that the group that was doing it at the time, I mean, they were... They did all the bad things that, that terrorist murderers do. I mean, all of them. How do you, so one, was that the first time that you were on a call where somebody got killed? It was the first kidnapping that I was directly involved in where somebody, where people were getting killed, yes. All right, so when the first body shows up, what, are you the one talking to them? No, we coached. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons why, you know, what I'm doing now is applicable, uh, the, the Black Swan method is based on hostage negotiation, which is universal. Human nature. Everybody's human. So I could show up in any country. I mean, literally any country, any culture, Philippines, Nigeria, Cape Town, Baghdad. All I need to do is find somebody that's coachable. And that person probably knows the market, if you will. And I understand the human wiring. So we put together their, their, their knowledge of the market in very general terms and my knowledge of how to get people to engage. And then we can negotiate anywhere. Okay, so when the first body comes out, what happens to you? 
It's the first time that this has gone awry. We're in the 7% now yeah. that don't go well. It For me, when I think about the way that that would like impact my mind and force me to like regroup, did it knock you off or are you just laser focused? Well, you got to keep rolling because the case was still ongoing. And so no time for emotions right now. Is that what you're telling yourself? Uh, yeah, kind of probably, you know, it's just, I mean, you got no choice. The case is still going on. You got, you, you got a team. You want to go fast, go long. You want to go far, go as a team. You can always run screaming from the building. <laughs> but really, and this, this is where life gets interesting for me, is that by nature, I would say I'm a run screaming from the building person, but I had to flip it all because I don't respect that. And right. in discovering that you don't respect your initial impulse becomes a fascinating journey if yeah, you're willing yeah, to yeah. walk it. But so I'm, I'm always curious if, if other people are having to do what I have to do to keep myself centered in there, or if it's just like, nah, it didn't occur to me to run screaming from the building. Well, and when, you're, when you're in the midst of, you know, when you're in the battle, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't bail. I mean, people are looking at you to lead. There are other people's lives that are still on the so line. So that's your you identity. Yourself up. You wouldn't allow yourself to do that. Probably, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. Did you, because I know you at least have one son. Yeah. Did you teach him that? Like, hey, in this family, we don't tuck tail. We don't run. Because what, fight, flee, make friends? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, do you have those kind of conversations with him? Because this, like, I don't know how much of this is your character from birth and how much of this right. is you've built this incredible um, value system that allows you to be in the most insanely difficult situations on planet Earth. You go into great detail about this in the book, and it's so true. Most people are so uncomfortable with conflict that even when it's asking for a raise or negotiating for a car, they can't do it. They can't sit in that discomfort. Right, right, right. That's nothing compared to, they just dumped a beheaded body at our feet to say, you're not convincing, basically. Right. Like you're not getting anywhere. That's a real life, man. Like yeah. I, can, I can understand why most people would not wanna do that. So I'm curious, and it, I find that asking people how they raise their kids often gets to what they do internally. So what did you teach your son or sons uh, about who we are as a family? Yeah, I think it was me and my father simultaneously. And, you know, and everybody else is what my mother as well. Because um, uh, you know, my son, Brandon, who runs my company. Is the he, best negotiator or so I'm told. He, he's, he's a star. He's really good. Um, He's basically a Jersey guy, you know, he's mixed race, but he's this bizarre combination of Jersey and Iowa because we started sending him back to Iowa. My father's a very blue-collar, blue hard worker, expects you to figure stuff out and get stuff done. We started sending my son back to Iowa in the summertime when he was about six. So he's so comfortable in both worlds that actually back in Iowa, they like to call him Metro Jethro because he, he loves it there. He fits in completely. And, you know, he's growing up, he's eight years old. Uh, grandpa's got him working in the business first half of the day because the town pool doesn't open until noon. So he, he'd have to get out of bed in the morning and have breakfast with his, with his grandpa or his grandparents. And then he'd have to get on his bike and ride to the same location his grandfather was driving to. But his grandfather wouldn't give him a ride. 
He's like, look, you get on your bike, you get out there, you're supposed to be there at 8.30. You get yourself out of bed, get yourself fed. I'll see you at the office. And they would leave at approximately the same time. And, you know, he'd be like, why am I not getting a ride? But that was just sort of the way that he grew up with, you know, my, my parents' help. And then, then at home, it was always, yeah, you got knocked down, pick yourself up. Mm. He's, he's got a memory from when he was playing football in uh, – uh, he went to fifth year of high school because he was really young. So there was a special program to get him ready for college ball. And he was, I mean, he made a great play. Uh, he's playing middle linebacker. He hustled all the way across the field, missed the tackle, just barely missed the guy. I mean, phenomenal hustle. Ended up diving through the air, landed on the ground, out of bounds, and put just such effort into it. And he was laying on the ground. And he remembers hearing my voice in the distance go, great hustle. Now get up. And he was like, all right, well, <laughs> this is the environment I grew up in. So I think it's, yeah, it was sort of a family thing that we inherited from my dad. And, you know, my dad picked out a woman that believed in those values. And his mom believed, Brandon's mom believed in hard work. So that's just kind of how he came up. Yeah, I love that value system. I'm a fan for sure. Uh, okay. So at what point do you start articulating those values out loud? And are you talking about toughness, resilience? Um, like what, what is it? Like I read your book before I saw interviews with you. And so I wasn't expecting the sort of East coast, uh, <laughs> attitude. And it was, um, then suddenly it asked an interesting question for me because what I'm trying to tease out is, okay, how much of like the, your ability to negotiate is just this like aggressive, tough nut, you know, it's all about being hardcore and how much of it is learned resilience and strategy. I'm a little bit of a believer in, um, that pretty much everything is learned. Um, the talent code, Daniel Coyle, I think. Yep. That's the point that he tries to make. That, you know, the uh, human beings that we think are prodigies, they just got interested before anybody noticed. And then, bang, suddenly they were good at it, but they'd been interested in practicing for a while. I think that's pretty close to being true. Um, I wish I could think of his name. A documentary I saw recently on a, a phenomenally successful... Uh, a music producer picked out uh, the correct key when he was three years old when uh, somebody was cleaning a piano and hit one of, hit one of the, the, the keys. So he probably was born with some extra. Mm. But um, I pretty much think everything is learned. Now, how did my son learn it? Well, um, right after I left the FBI, I attended a training session. And it was the first time it occurred to me, I remember saying to myself, leading by example is not enough. So I don't think I ever told him anything explicitly. I think I, both he, myself, you know, his grandfather, we saw it lead by example. You know, you want somebody to learn how to do something or to learn how to live. I mean, then set a great example and expect them to pick it up. So, but if it's not enough, what is the magic formula? Yeah, great question. Um, Depend upon the age of the human being, you know, probably they gotta, you gotta, you gotta find somebody else, hopefully to mentor them, or you gotta let them find their own way. And it's going to be messy. 
and ideally you've led by example enough till you know some that stuff as you were talking about the age of imprinting right mm. so by the time they're starting to get in trouble in their mid-teens or later i mean they're kind of imprinted you you got to go with whatever you you put in them and then ideally their mistakes um that they're gonna have to make uh ideally they're not costly enough where they're crippled for life over it but give them some space make them ride their bike to the pool pick yourself back up yeah be tough be resilient face it yeah i think all that stuff's amazing okay so and now then, you know and even to take a little bit further because you know and um Caleb's book anti-fragile mm, great book post-traumatic stress growth right and then i'm reading an art piece about cooper cup today who uh a receiver for the rams cooper cup cooper cup cooper cup the guy who said all they won a football. triple crown this year everybody forgotten that the guy recovered from an acl tear several years ago normally oh. the end of a football player's effectiveness mm. if not their career like normally they're never the same after this traumatic injury torn acl none of these almost none of these guys are ever the same cup says to himself this is my opportunity to rebuild myself get rid of my bad habits you know like fix what i was ever doing wrong and Rams are in the Super Bowl, and he won the Triple Crown for receivers. I mean, he's got he's number one in all these categories. And you and I'm like, wait a minute, I he tore his ACL. Nobody comes back from an ACL tear. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking post traumatic stress growth. He made the decision not just to recover, but to be better as a result of this massively traumatic injury. That's, you know, that's, that's beyond resilience. That's, that's what Tyler would talk about being anti-fragile. Yeah, no, I love that. Such a powerful idea that getting hurt can actually make you stronger. But in the human anyway, it comes down to your mindset, how you yeah. respond to it. Yeah. So now let's, we're back in the Philippines. The first body just gets dropped off. You obviously decide that you're gonna get stronger. You don't want it to happen again. How do you, like, are you just, really good at recentering yourself emotionally or have you are is it a meditative practice like when the body hits i i know what that would be like for me that rush of blood to my head where my ears almost feel like they're closing in you can hear your heartbeat beating in your ears um how did you did that happen and you had to calm yourself down or does that just not happen and, and you're just so laser focused well, it was principally because we were still in the midst of the siege. There were still two, <clears throat> still two Americans whose lives were at stake. And up to that point in time, the, intergovern the intergovernmental organization was probably at its worst. Like we had previously gotten through a case and everybody had gotten away with kind of half cooperating and the bodies hadn't been, the case we just finished uh, just a couple of months earlier, like nobody got killed. And it's a little bit like, like success. You went, you know, a football analogy again, it's tough for a football team to repeat after they won the Super Bowl because people are a little more focused on their own success versus team success once they reach the pinnacle. So the cooperation in the early part of the second case was horrible. I mean horrible, because they'd gotten away with it previously. And there was no body count. But now there was there was people were dying. 
So we really had to, we got arms more around the case. We pushed a little harder on cooperation. People got a little more serious about not cooperating, which in the long run, 12 months later, was when the final round, uh, two out of three remaining Americans got killed in a botched rescue attempt. And the, the case had gotten really ugly again at that point. Now that one hit me harder than the first one because in the first one, nobody had been cooperating with us. So I felt less responsible for the outcome because the government of the Philippines was playing games with us. You know, they, they, they felt out of control on the last case. So they gave us a guy who was supposed to handle the negotiations that was just completely going missing in action on a regular basis when he was supposed to be with us. I mean, he, and, and they pulled him right after the first series of deaths. They were like, all right, this ain't working out so good. So I felt, you know, we still had the case going and I hadn't gotten my arms wrapped around it that well. Now, 12 months later, I had had my arms wrapped around it. And then when Martin Burnham, when the word came in that he got killed, that, that hit me. That was, a, that was a real, I'll never forget that moment. I was, I was at home in the U.S. When I, when I got the call that he'd been killed. That, for me, at the time, was difficult. Uh, worst moment of my professional career. One of my worst personal moments until I'm listening to a case a couple years later listening to a negotiator talk about how hard it was on him when a baby had gotten killed in a siege. Oh, God. And I remember thinking at the time, and it was a guy I had a tremendous amount of respect for. I thought, hard on you? That wasn't your relative. And then when I thought about that, I thought, and how am I, you know, feeling sorry for myself over Martin Burnham's death because he wasn't my father. He wasn't, you know, my spouse. He wasn't my brother. You know, I, I got no right feeling bad about this. Or at least to the extent that his family members do. So that, you know, that was a bit of, you know, the overall journey that putting things in perspective. Like you asked to be in the middle of this stuff. It's a volunteer job. You're going to feel sorry for yourself when you volunteered. That's probably out of perspective. Why did you volunteer? You know, I, I found myself, I was in crisis response. I was a member of the FBI SWAT team, and I had re-injured my knee, and I wanted to stay in crisis response. I liked crisis response. People got to make up their mind. You know, you can't go, well, let's sleep on this. You know, let's give us 24 hours to think about it. You know, you can't do that. You, get, you know, you got to make a decision. And I've always been in favor of decision-making. So... I'd been a SWAT guy and we had hostage negotiators and it was a little bit like what we were talking about earlier. You know, some stuff is a lot harder than it looks from the outside. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I literally remember thinking to myself, I talk to people every day. I could talk to terrorists. How hard could it be? You know, my son and I joked that a Voss family motto is how hard could it be? <laughs> Which is a little bit like, you know, it's a little bit like the rednecks famous last words. Hey, watch this. Yeah. Hold my beer. <laughs> Hold my beer. So, uh, but then I got into it and I'd been volunteered. When I finally got trained, I got volunteered on a suicide hotline. And then when I'm in it, I'm like, I'm a, 
around these extraordinary people that are doing phenomenal things with words. I mean, with words. Not actual actions, just words. Making a huge difference and being in the middle of these sieges and making a difference simply by what they said. And I thought, now, nah, you know, I could get into this. This, this. this could be good. And it was. And so how does that journey begin of learning what to say? Like, what are they, what are the sort of magic words? Like, take us back to the Philippines. The bodies start coming out. How do you talk somebody down like that? Like, it, it just seems like all hope is lost once they kill the first person. There's no backing out. Yeah, man, they still got more people that are at stake. <clears throat> and so you, you, you can't not communicate. And, you know, it's kind of like any other negotiation where the other side is doing stuff that is just not in their interest, but they're absolutely convinced that they're right. I mean, these guys want to get paid. And negotiation is not what it is to you, it's what it is to the other side. You get all bent out of shape that it's a horrific, horrible thing. That was something I heard you say, I think, in, in an interview. Yeah. So there is no such thing as logical. There's right. only what matters to you. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, that is so true. You literally just cut through decades worth of economics textbooks (laughs) that try to make people seem rational with that one sentence. The second I heard you say that, I was like, oh my God, that is absolutely true. There is no such thing as logical. There's only what matters to you. Yeah. Okay, so is that like when you come into a situation like that, are you just asking yourself, what matters to this person? Yeah. Is that that the most fundamental question, what matters? Then what matters, and and then ultimately people make up their mind principally on what they perceive the loss to be. Um, and that's that's human nature. Doesn't matter the scenario. When you say the loss, the loss that led them to do this, or what losing in that scenario would look like. Got to look at both. Loss that drove them to the table in the first place to take the action, mm. and then. What loss are they avoiding by the action? And you want to get in their head and find out what it is. And since what loss are they avoiding is all perception, you know, vision of the future, then depending upon how you got in their head, if you're in there by invitation, which is the whole point of empathy or the tactical application of empathy, to get in by invitation. Since you're in there by invitation, then the idea is to get them to look at another loss. So if it's a kidnapping, it's a question that is, is, seems as um, merciless as how are you going to get paid if you kill people? How, how, how are we going to collaborate? You know, how much are you losing by getting rid of hostages when you could have gotten paid for them? Because somebody's going to scare up the money for the hostage. Right. Somebody's going to. A hostage negotiator's real job internationally is to make sure that if somebody scares up that money, that there's enough of a trail left that you can hunt them down afterwards. It's exactly why you give a bank teller bait money. You don't want the bank teller to get shot over money. Now, you also don't want the bank robber to leave the bank with the entire contents of the vault. 
you give them enough money so the bank tell it doesn't get shot, the bad guy leaves, and you chase him down afterwards. That's the way to save lives and put the bad guys out of business. Do you want to get them focused back on the money again? And then if they kill more hostages, it's their loss. And that's when they start to think like, all right, well, maybe we made our point. You know, let, let, them, let, them, let them feel that way. Who cares how they feel as long as you get what you want? And that's the idea to try to re-engineer the outcome. That's really interesting. That, um, is that an easy position to take? Because it definitely makes them feel like we're a game, this is a game, or they're a chip versus like, you almost have to divorce yourself from their humanity and meaning the hostages. Right. I can't even think about them as people right now because that may stop me from actually getting them back. Is that, do you approach it that way? Or are you trying to hold front and center, this is somebody's mom, daughter, whatever, and keep that front of mind? Like how do you, what's the best tactic? Well, yeah. You know, you, you actually you learn the success tactic, tactic again, and I learned it from Gary. The process is you, you, you lower their value as a bargaining chip, you increase their value as a human being to the bad guys. So that decreases the chances not only the bad guys will kill them, but also you impact how they're treated in the meantime. That's incredibly shrewd. So how do we lower their value as a bargaining chip and then how do we increase their value as a human without the person feeling like they're being manipulated? That's always the fine line. Right, right. Well, it's one of the reasons for potentially for a proof of life question. Not necessarily that you're getting proof of life, but you're making them thinking about it as a human being. Mm. Like, all right, at this point in time, we got no hostage still alive. What's... Uh, you know, Martin Burnham's favorite thing to do with his kids first thing in the morning. And by asking that question, you force a thought pattern into the bad guys. Because they were kids at one point in time. You know, um, terrorists, really bad guys, it's not that they're completely lacking in emotion, they're completely lacking in certain emotions, which means they've had some emotional experiences you want to see which ones are there that they resonate positively with. You know, one of the crazy things uh, that I learned a long time after the fact is terrorists got moms. I mean, you'd be shocked at the emotional vulnerability across the board to the power of a well-crafted message from a mom. Really? I mean, and if, like the first, we found this out, and again, my boss, Gary Nestor, he had a great feel for this. We're in the midst of the first case, um, the um, uh, Jeff Schilling case, which the bad guy, nobody died, hostage walks away because the bad guys get so um, uh, disorganized and disheartened. And two months after the case, the, the, the serial killer terrorist on the other side calls a negotiator that I coached to congratulate him on how effective he was. Not in a rage, but to... To literally say, you know, you're really good at what you do. Wow. They should promote you. So in the midst of that one, bad guys are threatening that they're torturing the American. Not they're going to kill him, but they're torturing him. And the State Department is like, you know, we got to get this torture threat off the table. 
And I remember thinking, like, you're not really bent out of shape unless you're being made to look bad here. Because having right. an American tortured overseas makes you look bad. And that's what you're concerned about. I'm like, all right, so we'll see what we can do. And I talked I talk to my boss, Gary, and I'm like, all right, so how do we go from release him, release him to be nice to him? <laughs> this is absurd. And, uh, you know, Gary says to me, he says, um, tell him that his mom is worried about him. And I can remember literally in that moment, like I held the phone away from my head and I remember looking at the phone and I thought to myself, that is the dumbest effing thing I have ever heard in my life. And I kind of rolled my eyes and, and I used to ignore so much of what Gary told me anyway. You know, he was good. He gave me a lot of rope. And so I go, okay, we'll see if we can work that into the conversation because I want to make him feel like I was paying attention to him. So we coach up the negotiator the next day and, you know, we got the negotiation operations center set up and we got sheets of paper with dialogue and we're going to be there with him the whole time. You can hear tone of voice. When you get the cadence, you got a pretty good idea what's being said just based on tone. And we tell him, he says, you you know, you got to work this mom thing into the conversation. And he looks at us like, you're kidding, right? I'm like, eh, you know, just find a way to work it in. So he's on the phone with a bad guy, and we're we're all but getting him to come right out that they're not torturing him, because they're not. I mean, there's no need to, but it makes them look good to claim they are. And and Benji says to the bad guy, says, you know, his mom's worried about him. And the sociopathic terrorist on the other end of the phone literally says, his mom knows about this? You tell her he's okay. Whoa. And we're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, you know, we're on the other side of the clock in Manila. Uh, you know, we're 12 hours on the other side of the clock. So it's the middle of the afternoon for me. It's, a middle, it's 1.30 in the morning for Gary. Mm. And I'm like, I got to get this out of the way. I mean, I, I, I have to get this out of the way. So I immediately call Gary and I wake him up in the middle of the night. You know, he always took the calls. 1.30 in the morning, phone rings, and I hear me, hello. And I go, you always effing have to be right. And he's like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I go, I don't know how you knew that this guy was going to resonate with the mom stuff, but it worked perfectly. How did he know? Did he say? You know, uh, great gut instinct, but once we started looking for it, then it would show up in case after case. And which is really hard, you know, once I was looking for that dynamic, every terrorist got a mom. And if you had to bet, it's a good bet that they're bonded to their mom. Like physically, they were born, they had to have a mom. Mom was probably nurturing all the different stuff that bent them out of shape and turned them into the twisted human being that they became. Probably didn't have anything to do with mom. So they still got deep inside, you know, first year of their life, they were nurtured by mom. Mom did everything she could, she possibly could. Even terrorists got moms. And I saw this show up a couple times later on, and I started realizing it was probably, if you took me to Vegas, which I live there now, and you said, place a bet. Is this guy going to resonate emotionally with the mom? And I'd say, based on our data, 
we got an 85 to 90% chance that the mom is a button we can punch. And so then in subsequent cases, knowing this, I'd bring it up with ambassadors or, or, you know, FBI headquarters or the White House. And they'd all react the exact same way that I did. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. That ain't, you know, they're inhuman. Uh, That ain't ever going to work. And we saw, I saw evidence of it in 2012 when um, Son of Al-Qaeda, the group in in, uh, Iraq that was chopping people's heads in 2012, 2014, 2014 timeframe. Their name will come to me after the fact. But there was, uh, there was one case there where the mom card got played really strongly and the head of, head of the group responded. And I remember thinking, like, I've been telling, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but we see it over and over and over again. So there's a common humanity thread to every human being, regardless of circumstances. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with ebay motors brake kits led headlights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply that's really interesting. So we've got the mom thread. We've got, what are some of the other threads? A desire to be heard, uh, want to be in control. Like what are, what are some known knowns when you roll up on average, the sort of 80, 85% range when you roll up, you know, okay, mom, probably going to be a button. They want to be in control. They want to be heard. Um, are there any others? Sense of loss. And, you know, an idea of some sort of a loss. Loss is the strongest behavior trigger of human nature, period. Period. How do you track that down? Um, Well, first of all, it's it's like you know what you're looking for to begin with. 
that it's not really active listening, it's proactive listening. And there's certain things, or the tactical application of empathy. What do we know to be true? What do we got to bet on? Loss is the primary, the biggest impact on decision-making of human beings across the board. Danny Kahneman, 2002, Nobel Prize winner, behavioral economics, lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain for people, period. If you're human, you're wired that way, which makes it the biggest trigger in thinking. So if they're engaged in a behavior that we don't understand, they perceive the loss, and we got to start you know, sniffing around for it, looking for the hints, knowing it's there. And then consequently, you're going to get them to change their mind about something, you reformulate the loss. If I say to you, if you do this, there's a 90% chance you fail. You're like, I'm not doing that. But if I say, do this, there's, you know, you got a 10% chance of success. Ooh, that sounds and lands completely different. 10%, I could su- succeed. 10%, I'm a winner. I'm in the 10%. You know, it, it lands differently. But if you want to make sure they don't do it, 90% chance you'll fail here. I'm not doing that. I'm not taking that risk. That's too far against me. I mean, that will shut somebody down for sure. 10% success might move them forward, but I guarantee you I shut you down with a 90% failure rate. There is no difference in those numbers. Exact same numbers. And so you start to see it across the board and like, all right, so we're going to get them to change their mind. We just change the frame of the loss. You're in a merger and an acquisition negotiation. Entrepreneur, sole proprietor is trying to sell this company. Wants to get, you know, whatever, um, 10x EBITDA. Because a buddy of his got 10x. Now, the person buying his company wants to take him, wants him to take a lower multiple so that in two years he retains a piece and he makes 30, 40, 50, $100 million more by taking less now. Guy's thinking his loss, I, you know, I, I, can't, I can't take a million dollars less for this. I can't take nine when I should take 10. I'll lose a million dollars. Take nine, take a piece. You're willing to risk $100 million seven years from now? You want to lose $100 million over a million dollars now? And they'll be like, no, that's crazy. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You just reframed what the loss is. And that's where you get people to change their mind because whether it's a terrorist thinking we have lost, you know, we've been harmed in the past. We've lost our homeland. You know, we've lost our identity. Terrorism is about choosing violence as a way to make up for loss. Interesting. I have never heard that before. Uh, is that universal? Um, it's the universal driver of human decision-making. Now, how they're looking at the loss, you know, you know, there's kind of three groups that are out there that you see over and over again. In a lethal triad, they called it the uh, charismatic leader, the sociopathic um, middlemen, you know, the number twos, captains, lieutenants, and then the inadequate followers. There's a terrorism book from way back when called Crusaders, Criminals, and Crazies. Uh, a friend of mine, Tom Strench, wrote a book called The Bad, The Mad, and The Sad. So it kind of breaks down into, you know, the, the complete charismatic leader 
Maybe he believes in a cause, maybe he just believes in himself. The criminals are involved. They're just doing it because it's a way to combat the status quo and continue to commit crime. The people that are looking for identity, you know, it's harsh to describe them as the inadequate followers, but the sad, you know, they're looking for an identity. And the leadership has convinced them that they've been harmed by this perceived loss and they have to make up for it. So it's kind of packaged along those lines. And is that who's going to be there actually doing the hostage part? So you're not dealing with the charismatic leader, you're dealing with the sad underlings? Principally, the sad underlings are their implementers because they're the cannon fodder for the leader. You know, the, the leadership, whether it's a charismatic leader or a sociopathic enabler, who are they going to put at risk? Who are you going to send out to conduct the kidnapping? Who's going who's gonna to hold the hostage? Who's going to be the hostage's jailer? That's the worst job on their side, you know, to have to sit around with a hostage day after day. It's, a, it's, a, it's you know, you're not, you're not giving that to your talented people. How did these guys, 13 months? Yeah. How did they not just get bored and want it to end? Um, they're prepared for a little longer siege. They've got a vision of a big payoff in the end. That $20 million payout the year previous painted visions of wealth, mm. which means if they don't get their $20 million, they're losing. So you'll stay in the game longer because of this perceived loss. And you know, the are vision you guys of riches. letting food get in, or have they stocked up enough food to get through all this? Well, we're trying to, we're trying to get stuff in. Um, uh, you know, didn't know this was going on at the time, but, um, Dan Bowden, the author of Black Hawk Down, wrote an article in Vanity Fair, probably about a year after this case went down, revealing a whole bunch of information that I was not privy to in the case. So according to Dan Bowden, who evidently has great resources in the U.S. government, not in the FBI, there were unnamed government agencies that were setting in, sending in food deliveries with informants that had tracking devices in them. Oh. That, again, according to Dan Bowden in his article in Vanity Fair, you know, I am quoting a public source. I am not quoting, you know, secret mm. government information that uh, there were food deliveries that were being made with tractors on them. Okay, so that starts getting complicated with all kinds of different agencies <laughs> pulling in different directions. Right. Um, what is all this like seeing people beheaded, uh, recognizing the sad, the mad? mad the sad. Yeah. Like, nice rhyme there, huh? Thank you, Tom Strand. I'll, I'll try to remember it better. But um, what is all of this revealing to you like about humanity? Do you, do you have a, a look at humanity like this is crazy that this is ugly are you optimistic like i mean that you've seen some gnarly shit like what does this give you a takeaway because you said i could drop you anywhere and you know enough about human wiring right to to go into this yeah and it does not paint a pretty picture with the ways in which we are manipulatable between this is all about loss and just reframing the loss completely reframe like the fact that we would do this kind of crazy shit over loss that my mother is going to like trigger some very strange reaction given the circumstances. Like, how do you 
conceptualize of human nature at this point? Well, yeah, I'm, first of all, I'm very optimistic. Um, you know, it, to me, it's relief that we're kind of all wired the same. Interesting. You know, this, even though it means that we are all then in, oh God, who was it? Solzhenitsyn, I think, that said, either Solzhenitsyn or Frankel, that evil runs through the center of every human heart. I wouldn't go that far. I think um, the, the, the capability of doing something that appears to be very evil and heartless when people get really scared and afraid for their own survival. I am, I am somewhat, like when people start getting really afraid for their own survival, people's ability to uh, discard the humanity of people around them as a defense mechanism, you know, that saddens me to some degree. Um, but it, it is. So, you know, don't curse the darkness, get a flashlight, figure it out, get night vision goggles. You know, just there are certain things that simply are. Mm. Um, but they're, they're consistent. So if I understand what is, and it's consistent, and you don't, it, it doesn't do you any good to get angry at people for having a propensity to, to do really bad things inadvertently or just out of self, self-protection. And, but maybe it makes it more forgivable to know that when backed into a corner, people are more scared rabbits than they are predatory wolves. So most people are not predatory wolves. They're, they're, they're out there. But the vast majority of people are not. Have you come across predatory wolves? Well, I th- you know, I think you know the guy in the in the, um, um, uh, the the shilling case who was on the on the other end of the phone. Yeah, he was he was a predatory wolf. I mean, he was a bad guy. He but, was the one that was beheading people. Yeah, and then then the crazy thing was, I mean, it's really interesting the way that plays out because in the second case, instead of being in charge of the negotiations, second case he's in a char- in charge of the hostages. Same guy? Same guy. The same terrorist. He he got demoted from negotiator to jailer. Okay. But the hostages loved him because he he understood that a a hostage who was so spiritually broken that they couldn't get up off the ground was a logistical problem. Because they were on the run for most of the 13 months. They were moving from place to place. They were staying ahead of drones. They were staying ahead of patrols. I they were all like sitting in, in one house and you guys are surrounding it. No, no, no. Kidnapping is a mobile <sighs> operation. Wow, I've had the wrong impression this whole time. Well, there's, there's two kinds of cases I could be working. I could be working a contained case, like what you're talking about, where they're not getting away. Or I could, I could be working the uncontained, you know, mm-hmm. to use real simple terminology. So, you know, talking with... Gracia Burnham, uh, the, the American who lived. She got shot by friendly fire in the leg, and she survived. Phenomenal human being, and her kids, whom I'm acquainted with, um, are f- wonderful people. Every, every member of, her, of their family, wonderful human being. And that's the father that got killed, right? Yeah. Now, she's telling us about this after the fact, because we're always de- debriefing hostages who survived, because we want to understand the dynamics behind the scenes, number one, number two, our survival debriefings ha- happen to be great stress debriefings for them. Two kinds of interviews, information gathering and stress debriefing. Why is it a st- stress debriefing? What do they get out of it? Um, you know, the opportunity to talk somebody through a horrific situation from beginning to end 
And for the listener to be genuinely curious, mm. as opposed to trying to extract information, like an interview of a released hostage by an investigator is exhausting. I mean exhausting. And they don't like it, and it sucks the life out of them. If they sit, we sit around, we ask them questions about what was the experience like? What were the bad guys? What were they like? How did you survive? You know, what emotional triggers did you go through? It's very cathartic for the hostage. So we're talking to Gracia Burnham and like, you know, of your captors, what was your reaction to this guy, this guy, this guy? And we bring up the sociopathic murderer. And she said, yeah, we kind of liked him. I mean, he could tell when we were really down. And if he sensed that I was really down, he would say, you know, take her down to the river, you know, give her some time alone, let her clean herself up, you know, just just give her a break. Take it a little bit easier on her. This is the guy that was beheading people. Yeah. Because That's so weird to me. He's responsible for moving these people if they need to move in a hurry. See, this this is something that from a what what are humans like? Chris Voss, let us answer the question, what are humans like? So it is really strange to me that a human can, in one scenario, be beheading people and then get a slightly different job description and be like, all right, take them down to the water and let them wash. Um, that does say to me that the line of evil runs through every human heart. How does that not say it to you? Do you think that, it, is that not the predictable part? Like you just, of course, like that makes sense. He's gonna have bonded with them because that's his job Well, and bond with them. He's, 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 to him, they're a commodity that he has to be able to move in a hurry. And so he's just letting them go down to the river so they, they will move quickly when he needs them to. Exactly. Yeah, he knows he's got to, he, you know, he, does, he doesn't want them like happy to be there. But if they're completely disabled emotionally, they're going to be disabled physically. Mm -hmm. And if a military patrol comes too close, they're not going to be able to bug out of there in a hurry. And this is a valuable commodity he's got to take care of. And so he, he's agnostic. Now, some of the other captors are messing with them because they're bored and they're inadequate followers and they're inadequate human beings. And that's a completely different approach, which is what most hostages go through on a regular basis. You know, the people out of take boredom, them. they just start fucking with them. Yeah. And what does that take the look of? Throwing rocks at them? You know, I've, I've heard plenty of stories in... Uh, you know, in, in some of the rougher kidnappings in South America where just for entertainment, they'll put a rifle to somebody's head and pull the trigger on an empty chamber just to Jesus. watch them flinch. Just. And, you know, because they got nothing better to do. What do you take away from that? Like, that's so sadistic. Yeah. So have you read um, Solzhenitsyn's book, uh, the Gulag Archipelago. I have not. Oh my God, read it, Chris. I'm so curious to know what you think about this. So it's interesting. I I am not yet sure I understand what you have taken away from all of these people. I have thankfully not encountered anything like this. There was one guy in high school that people said he beat kittens to death. And I remember thinking, oh my God, that's so dark. I almost couldn't allow myself to believe that it was true. So I was right. like, ah, oh, maybe it's exaggerating, whatever. So anyway, that always stuck in the back of my head. Did that guy really beat kittens to death? So that just freaks me out. But when I read the Gulag Archipelago and 
it's basically Solzhenitsyn screaming for like a thousand pages. It's unreal. Wow. Cataloging the cruelty that befell him, the way that people turn on each other, the way that you could get a prisoner to turn into a guard and that they right, would then right. be cruel to other prisoners just as a way to like get themselves out of it. And that so easily we could turn on each other and pluck, you know, fingernails and just torture people cruelly, kill them, uh, send them away to, you know, these prison camps that were almost certainly death sentences. And it was like Jordan Peterson introduced this idea to me, which has been useful. He said, don't think of yourself as the one that hides Jews in the attic. Think of yourself as a Nazi guard. And I was like, whoa, because you want to talk about something. I just always, no way. Like I could never, ever, ever. And then when you allow yourself to go, do I have weakness inside of me? I do. And is there a threshold at which just to save my own family that I would do something horrendous? I worry that I would. And so hearing Solzhenitsyn basically say, you're all capable of it. We're all capable of it. And it's like, oh man. So when you talk about somebody going from, cause I don't know, I don't read that guy. Look, you obviously were in the mix. And so I could just be totally misreading this. But when I hear the guy in one kidnapping time is beheading people, hey, no problem. And the next is like letting them go down to the river. That to me is more of a mother moment than it is a, this guy's a logistical genius and he knows I have to like keep them to a certain <laughs> level of prime. Maybe he is, maybe he is. You yeah. heard firsthand experience. But to me, I just hear when you're in a different role and I don't know how real the Stanford prison experiment is and if it's ever been replicated, but I'm sure you've heard that classic thing where they had some students, they said, you guys are the guards, you guys are the prisoners, but they were classmates. And within three days, they had to shut the experiment down because the prison guards started acting so abusively towards the prisoners, even though they were randomly assigned, that they ethically, they just couldn't continue. And so that's what I hear in this story. And I'm not sure if that means that you have a way more optimistic view because you're just a better person than I am, or I don't know, <laughs> I don't, that's really I'm a deeply flawed person. Yeah, it's very intriguing. What do you believe to be true about the individual? Are we capable, are all of us capable of great kindness and great evil? Or it's a spectrum and some of us are tighter on the scale. What, what is true of humans? Yeah, you know, um, I think it's a spectrum. Um, you know, just because you can get some people to do horrific things doesn't mean you can get everybody to do horrific things. It, you know, it, it's kind of in the, in the environment and then things go a little at a time. You know, the, the, the boiling frog analogy. Can't drop a frog in a boiling water, but you can start them out in warm water and raise the temperature and they'll stay. You know, the, the, the degree of changes. And then as we, as we grow um, and go through life, then, then what, what have we experienced that we failed? Everybody fails. Everybody goes down the tubes. Everybody's got something. They've just got a moment where they were fragile or they did something that they, they, they uh, probably deeply regret. Now, again, are you, do you become a better person as a result and forgive yourself? 
uh, for failing to step up, you know, what do you do as a result? You know, everybody, everybody's going to do stuff where they failed themselves, where they were fragile, they made a bad decision. They were heartless, either intentionally or accidentally. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you pick it up after that is what the real issue is. And how do you pick yourself up? Like, for me, it would be, I would assess what I believe to be right, true, aren't quite there, but I would figure out what, what do I want my values to be? What right. do I aspire to be? And I would have to reorient myself towards aspiration. So I failed and I would be very careful not to allow the failure to become what I perceive of myself. You're, thank you for letting me talk through something I've never had to articulate. But here's a really interesting idea that I've had on my mind lately that you can, who you believe yourself to be is a frame of reference unto itself. Yeah. And you see things and experience things through that frame of reference, what you believe to be true about yourself. If you believe yourself to be capable, if you believe yourself to be a good person, you will act accordingly and view your actions accordingly and view as you imagine the future, you will imagine, oh, I'm gonna be successful, you'll have optimism, I'm gonna handle this well, because that's your frame of reference. But if something happens that knocks your frame of reference, a failure or whatever, then suddenly your frame of reference shifts in an instant. I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm not good at this, and as you imagine the future, the future is bleak, and all of it is suddenly neurochemically real, and you are there. And what I have found interesting is if I ever find myself going to a dark place and it feels heavy and it feels like um, I'm pessimistic about the future, I say there is a single phrase that I will say to myself and it changes my neurochemistry in like four seconds. Yeah. And that's remember who you are. Oh. Now what's interesting is I know that's a game. I know it's a gimmick because I'm, <clears throat> I'm not anybody, right? I am, I am the person who can be confident and I am the person who can be scared. I am both of those things. But somehow along the way, that phrase triggers a neurochemical state for me and I yeah. can shift myself out of yeah. a negative viewpoint and get there. And so as I think about like, okay, you fail and this big traumatic thing happens to you, how do you grab the right, and maybe we need to debate this idea of frame of reference, but how do you grab a hold of the right frame of reference, which is going to completely distort good or bad, what you see, think, and feel. Yeah, I think it very definitely gets back to, because when you're saying remember who you are, that's like remember what your core values are. You know, get back on track. Sometimes I refer to that as two lines of code, you know, computer code. Everybody got two lines of code somewhere buried deep in their brain, which kind of drives who they are. God knows what it is in some cases, or how I got there. Like, how do, how do those two lines of code, how do the two lines of code that I believe probably drive me, how'd they get in my head? I, I don't know. Do we all literally have two lines of code? Is, I, it, I think is there a duality? I think or? there's something, uh, you know, I just say two lines of code because I think it's probably pretty simple. Okay. For whatever it is. It, it might either be like life, you know, it doesn't matter for some people, and, you know, then then when they do something wrong, well, it doesn't matter, and I let, let it go. Or... Look, uh, you're a good guy. Like that doesn't mean you're perfect, or be a good person, or you can succeed. 
you know, I don't know, my mom whispered that in my ear at some point in time when I was three. I don't know, I don't know how I got in there. I don't know exactly what it is. But I, you know, I think it would it what gives me the ability at some point in time, pick yourself up and get and learn from this. You know, you you you're not here to be uh, to take up to use oxygen. You got a purpose, whatever it is. You know, your your spiritual outlook on life, um, the the bigger picture. You know, we talked about uh, and never split the difference. You know, finding out somebody's religion. What is it that they believe in that's bigger than them? That they would, you know, they they would work forever and be happy, and one another person would consider it to be. Um, disparaging uh, and ruining their life. Like, how do how do people take the exact same circumstances, seem completely differently? Now, it's, maybe it's a two line of code, or if they get defeated and they and they never got up. So, yeah, I, I guess you know, mine's got to be largely optimistic, whatever it is. Um, and that's so. Then when you know, I find myself curled up in a fetal position, uh, unable to get off the floor, eventually I'm going to say, look, it's time to get up and get smarter. Time to get up and get smarter. Smarter. Okay, so let's talk about what makes somebody a good negotiator. What does the smarter look like? So if all of this is about two lines of code, like so much of your book revolves around once you understand how people are wired, once you understand what their religion is, once you understand their two lines of code, we become controllable isn't the right word, but we become movable. Influenceable, if that's a word. So how do we begin to suss that out? So when you're sitting across the table, and I like, I know that a lot of this deploys against business negotiations, but I want to keep it when lives are on the line. So ultra high stakes, literal life and death. What are you asking? What are you looking for? How much of like the fact that you guys have these teams and everybody's broken up. Okay. You're looking for positive statements. You're looking for negative. Walk us through that. What, what's the setup? And then how are we going to tease out this information? Well, yeah, the setup is, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to, pull together a team because there's so much in what's said and the way it's said, even more in the way it's said, that there's just, there's more information coming off a person. If, even if you can't see them, there's more information that you can keep up with if you're not trying to respond. And then, you know, you formulate a statement in your mind and the amount of time that you're formulating a statement, you're not listening. So there's just more data there than one person can handle. So we built a team concept and we had different people listen for different things. And the more we thought about it, like how long did the conversation go? How much profanity, which is, you know, emotional adjectives. How many emotional adjectives were in there? Negative emotional adjectives. As there's few, as the conversations get longer and there's fewer negative emotional adjectives, you're making progress. It's never a straight line, so it's going to go and come. So, you know, what's our pulse? What's our frequency? And then would people really start listening for the nuances? And you, you get five people together. I mean, if you want to listen for everything, you probably need at least five people keeping track of everything. And it then, then, then the patterns start to emerge really fast. Or like in a, in a tractor man siege in D.C. and 
tractor man? Yeah, Dwight Watson drove a tractor to the middle of Washington, D.C. in 2003, just before the beginning of the first Iraq war. And his family had been crushed by the tobacco industry settlement. They were no longer able to farm and sell enough tobacco. You know, I don't know, but this, the tobacco industry settlement ended up crushing his family business. He tried to protest in D.C. a couple of times, got legal permits to protest. Nobody cared. You know, save the tobacco farmer. That ain't exactly a hashtag that's real popular. Yeah. And it's not their fault that that's how they grew up making a living, which was com completely legal, acceptable, and nothing wrong. And then the world suddenly decides it's a bad thing. So he protests a couple years in a row. Nobody cares. So he rolls back into D.C. now with his tractor and his, and his, and his trailer and his 4x4 his, uh, and claims he's got bombs, which gets everybody's attention. Has a way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, you'll get somebody's attention. The work in the case, Park Police negotiators, we're backing them up, we're coaching them, we're doing all the analysis for them. You know, we're the team that we put up around them because we work a, a good team. And we get to the point where he's found a face-saving way to surrender. You know, he said, I was in the 82nd Airborne, the 82nd Airborne, parachutes behind enemy lines, and you're there for, for 72 hours with no backup, you can withdraw. So basically, he's agreed to come out after 72 hours. Now, the problem is he's a volatile dude, and since we don't know for sure whether or not he's got explosives, in a fit of rage, if he goes the wrong direction, the sniper's got a green light on him. And we're thinking like, all right, we got to keep this guy from getting himself killed. Because when you're in a rage, you're going to do something stupid, and there's a very specific protocol where we suspect the explosives might be, and if he makes a move for the explosives, we cannot wait and find out if they're there. And so we're thinking, like, we got to get this guy out of here in less than 72 hours because that's just too much for, for stable behavior. We cannot expect him to stay cool for 72 hours. So there's a disagreement within in the negotiation cell as to when he said he's going to come out. And I look at the negotiators and I go, when's, when's Dwight coming out? And they go, like, yeah, he's coming out tomorrow. And I said, I, I don't think he is. I think we're still 36 hours away. You know, we're not, we're not eight hours away. Well, we'll call him and ask him. And I'm like, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Before we call him, in the event he's not coming out tomorrow morning, what are we going to say to get him to change his mind? Now, we've heard all this military stuff, all this hyper-masculine stuff. And buried in the military jargon and the hyper-masculine stuff, there are hints of his religion, which is Christianity. Just hints of it. Just hints. And Winnie Miller, a female negotiator on my team, sitting in the back of the room. And we're, what do we say? What do we say? What do we say? And Winnie goes, tell him tomorrow's the dawn of the third day. Because... You know, in the Christian religion, Jesus crucified on Friday, he gets up on Sunday. That's 48 hours. Mm. That ain't three days. That's not 72. It's one day to Saturday, it's two days to Sunday. So we're thinking about this, and we're like, yeah, okay. Dawn of the third day. 
So we call him back on the phone. I go, Dwight, when are you coming out? You coming out tomorrow, right? And he goes, no, I'm not coming out tomorrow. And then the negotiator brilliantly, because delivery is as important as awards. She brilliantly says, Dwight, tomorrow's the dawn of the third day. There's this long silence on the other end of the line. He goes, I'll come out tomorrow. Now, she saved his life because I promise you that 24 more hours, he'd have cracked and he'd have made some move where the sniper would have taken him out. And we did not want that to happen. By this point in time, we're talking to this, and this, this poor schmuck has just been crushed. He's tried to get the world's attention. We don't think he's got bombs, but we don't know he doesn't have bombs, and we can't take that chance. We got to get him out of there before he gets himself killed. And so that was kind of, you know, here's a guy doing something that looked really bad, but there was still, possibly to your point, what's inside somebody? You know, what are those kernels, those grains that are still in there that maybe we can uncover, that maybe we can reach in and reach? And, and, and we got him out. He came out that nobody, nobody got hurt. Okay, so that was a case of literally knowing their religion. And also there's something in there about knowing that he needs to save face and the military thing about 72 hours and right, having right. an honorable exit and all of that. Um, how do you tease out this stuff? So somebody that wants to use this in their real life, yeah. the most interesting thing that you cover in the book in great detail is how you begin to like pull this information out. You mentioned earlier, but it's worth noting that the name of your company is Black Swan. Right. And the whole idea of it's the unknown unknowns. The tiny little things that make all the difference, yeah. And so how do you get to that? Well, yeah. Um, again, what are you listening for? You're, now, now I know what to, to tell you to look for. You know, look for the hints of loss. You know, what impacted their identity? Look for the narratives. That they're telling themselves? That they're telling themselves. You know, how does this make sense to them? You know, what's the trigger here? What's the opening question? Do you have a standard opening question that you ask them to get them to start talking? Yeah, you know, it, well, you know, one one of a couple things, um, which is like how every negotiation should go. Script out your first two or three lines, and then you're into an ad lib from that point on. You got to prepared. It's a dance. Let the other person lead, and they'll take you where you want to go. Give them a chance, and the opening is going to be some catch them off guard and expression of concern for them. And we used to talk about this all the time, like what's your opening line? And we would go back and forth on a lot of stuff. Um, for the longest time, my favorite was, I'm here to talk to you about coming out. Knowing that they're going to respond, I ain't coming out. Now my next line, which, and, and that's all I'm scripted is, I know you're not coming out now. I just want you to know that when you do, we're going to make sure that you feel treated with dignity and respect. And I got to make sure you don't get hurt. And now we're off to the races, wherever he wants to go. But I put a vision in his head with that statement. It doesn't matter what he says. It's that I got a chance to draw that picture. And then a, a buddy of mine, super talented guy, Vince Delfonso. He says, I want to call in and say, are you Okay. Because they're expecting us to call in and ask about the hostages. But are you okay? Now, I'm, I'm in a confrontation in a parking lot here in L.A. 
about two months ago. Really? Yeah. Just on a personal level? Yeah. Okay. And um, this guy honks at me. You know, he's clearly bent out of shape. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not being aggressive. And I'm in a parking lot. And, and I happen to be standing. I think I'm out of his way, but he wants to park where I am. And he honks at me. And he drives by me. He happens to be a black dude. doesn't really matter. And he's running his mouth as he goes by. And it clearly something has got him wound up before he ever saw me. And for whatever reason, I'm there at the wrong time. Now, I ain't letting this pass. And I'm also not getting into a fight with this guy. You're not letting it pass that he honked at you and was aggressive? And, yeah, and, and he's running his mouth as he goes by. You know, he's about five, six feet away. And as it turns out, we're both headed to the same restaurant anyway. But I'm like, I'm just in a mood like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the type to let this pass for a whole variety of reasons. So, of course, I walk right over to his car. And as he's getting out and he's glaring at me, I'm like, are you okay? He goes, yeah, of course I'm okay. You're in my way. I said, yeah, no, 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 seriously, seriously. Are you okay? Are you okay? And he was so caught off guard by that that it initially deactivated him. He said, yeah, well, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to park. You know, you're in the way. I'm like, yeah, yeah, man. Oh, man, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. I, that was stupid of me. I, I didn't, I was trying to look at the, at the front of the, um, the store to make sure I was at the right place. And now he, he's come down about halfway you know, he's clearly, he's coming down. And like, again, this dude has been triggered by something that he's carrying inside him before I'm even on the scene. And I'm not going to aggravate this. So we both, of course, we both head to the same restaurant door at the same time. So I go to hold, hold the door for him. And he's, he picks up his phone and acts like he's not going in. He is not going to accept a gesture of kindness from me. Right. And then I go inside and, you know, my girlfriend is there. And she's like, is, is everything okay? You know, what do we do wrong? And he's like, oh, you, you, got, you guys didn't do anything wrong. And so he lurks outside the restaurant till I'm getting ready to leave, but decides to come in at the same time that I'm leaving because it's a takeout. And I go to hold the door from the second time, and he walks through. So he goes from being combative and calling me names mm -hmm. and refusing to walk through the door when I'm being polite and not accepting a gesture of kindness from me to now, I, you know, I haven't been confrontive, combative, but I kind of have been confrontive, but confronted him about, is he okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And saying it in a way where I genuinely, genuinely meant it, when I get ready to leave the second time, he's good with accepting a gesture of goodwill for me. I hold the door and he comes through. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise 
noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, so from a technique standpoint, you knock him off guard by asking him if he's okay. And be genuinely concerned and let it come across in my voice. Because mm. I didn't plant that anger in him. I may, you know, I inadvertently added to it. But he rolled into this. You know, I, there's a phrase that I've seen, which is like, if you understood half the stuff that people are struggling with, you take it a lot easier on them. Like this dude is struggling with something before he shows up. It's a nice car. You know, I'm, I'm judging from his demeanor. Even though he's a black guy, he's, he's a white collar dude. He's got he's in a nice car, as I recall. It was a nice Jeep. You know, everything about him is just like another regular guy making probably a pretty good living, and something is eating him up before he even shows up there. And I happen to be there at the moment when inadvertently, you know, I add to it by standing in his way. So for you, the idea of not letting it go, you weren't... You confronted him, like you said, but it wasn't, I don't know, it, is there emotional gratification to you just to engage? Like, or you said, I, I'm not going to let it go for a whole host of reasons. So now right. I need to understand what reasons are those? Is it, did that feel like an affront to you in some way? And now you just need to engage. You need to like lower his anger and that gives you the, the sense of, Justice? Like, I'm not sure. Because I, if Probably you had gone above. up to him and been like, listen, asshole, that I would understand. Dumb, but I wouldn't understand. <laughs> but if, or what's your problem? Yeah, but if is it emotionally, are you looking for emotional catharsis in the confrontation? And is it catharsis that you get by helping him come down? Well, I can promise you that this is mostly selfish. Okay. You know, there's almost a joke out there, the myth of altruism. You're not helping people because you care about people. You help them because it makes you feel good. Therefore, it's very selfish to be altruistic. Sure. <laughs> so <laughs> you get into a whole circular argument over all this and knock yourself out unnecessarily. So it, it does make me feel good to, to, to help somebody out. Um, so, yeah, I, get it, I, get a, I feel genuinely better about it. Part of my philosophy is life. You know, I, I didn't invent this phrase, leave people better than you found them. You ain't making the world a better place. I'm also a very strong believer in karma. The more positive stuff I do, the more positive stuff comes back to me. I think there's actually, there's more and more reason to believe that there's something to this energy feeling karma. There's probably science behind karma. And it probably, in fact, impacts how people react to us and what comes our direction and what we repel. We, you know, we attract, you put out positivity, you're going to attract positivity. I'm also naturally born assertive type. Somebody runs their mouth at me. I'm not good at letting that go. I'm also not interested in making it worse. You know, um, uh, what's that? Uh, you make a speech when you're angry. It's the greatest speech you'll ever regret. So I'm not looking. I'm not looking to make it worse. And I know that you know if, if I got my negotiator hat on, you know, I, I can leave this guy better off. And probably in that particular moment, I've talked my way out of 
confrontations that I did not start. Other times, I've talked my talked people out of confrontations that I've seen in public that I had nothing to do with. Because I Walk just didn't want to see how, them go down how the How do tubes. you do that? When somebody's hyped up, they feel an injustice has been done, what's the path to helping them out of that? I'm, a tra- I'm on a train in Jersey on a Saturday morning a couple years ago. And a bunch of regular folks on a PATH train headed into Manhattan. And I see this, again, and skin color's got nothing to do with it. It could be Irish, could be Jewish. You know, they're just, they're just human beings. See uh, what looks to be like a basically a hardworking blue-collar black guy sitting on a on on a train. Another hardworking, uh, decent human being, black female sits down next to him. I mean, just slams in onto the. Uh, there's like about six inches. She plants herself, shoves him forcefully to the side, and says, "I said, excuse me, move over." And I and and I I see this poor guy. He's just sitting there minding his own business probably struggling with whatever he's doing. <clears throat> and I can see her pushing him. And she's got something she's struggling with on a completely separate. And I can see this getting ready to go bad. Because at some point, I'm on the other side of the car. At some point in time, he's going to get pushed to his limit. Because he was sitting there minding his own business. And no matter how he reacts, unless he gets up and walks away, he's going down over it. There ain't no excuse for pushing back physically with a female under any circumstances. L- legally, morally, however you look at it. And I'm looking at this poor bastard and I'm thinking like, <laughs> I don't want to see this guy go down. So I walk across the train and I lead with, I'm sorry. And when I'm sorry is the first thing out of your mouth, it startles people in a really good way. Like, what are you sorry for? And, I, and, and I'm going to personalize myself. I go, I'm sorry, I'm Chris. And I hold out my hand, which he refuses to take. And he snaps back, Chris, I'm not looking to meet you, Chris. Now, in point the fact, he has met me. He's using my first name. I went from being this bozo on the other side of the train to Chris. And I said, look, man, I just don't want to see anything bad happen to you. That's all. And I go back to the other side of the train. And I can see the wheels in his head turning a completely different way. And I can see from the look on his face, he's thinking like, this is stupid. This is just dumb. And he sits there for a few more seconds and he gets up. He doesn't stay in the ward and he gets, crosses a car to get away from this girl. And that was it. You know, two people living their lives, being triggered by something, got nothing to do with one another, and a potential conversation between just two regular people getting ready to go bad. He just needed an intervention to rethink what was going on. So did that work because of the idea of trying to, so you talk about Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and thinking slow, and you're trying to shock him out of the sort of emotional moment and get him to think more deeply about the situation? I'm look, well, I'm looking, I'm definitely looking for a thought pattern interrupt that's not where I'm not threatening. Mm. And, and I'm trying to trigger an emotional moment, which very much, as you talked about earlier, triggering the brain chemistry, the neurochemicals. we got to get some different neurochemicals coursing through the brain, get somebody th- thinking again. Because like, if, if you were to think about that dispassionately, if somebody's a jerk to me in public, 
which I didn't do anything to cause it. Like this person walked into this situation by being eaten up by their own amygdala before I even got got here. Mm -hmm. Something else been triggering them. They're struggling with something. If I were to completely understand, I'd walk away. And you need to get somebody in that mindset. Like, look, I didn't do anything wrong. This person's been out of shape. You know, they're struggling with something. If they had time to tell me, I'd, 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 I might give money. But instead, it's turned into a confrontational thing. In a moment, people are, the negative neurochemicals are triggering them. And again, if you, you make a speech when you're angry, it's the greatest speech you'll ever regret. You don't do smart stuff when you're mad. Very true. But you have said that you, if you can control the anger, that it can actually be useful in a negotiation. And I'd if love you to can know, trigger it to a higher level, what does that mean? Well, anger, and this is what a lot of people miss about anger. Um, like if you're if you're if you're if you've been shattered, if you're fra fragile, if you're laying on the floor and you can't get up, if you're in the depths of sadness, anger will get you out of it in a heartbeat. And I've actually used it some in the past. Um. If I if if for some, if something has made me incredibly d deeply sad, loss of a loved one, I pulled myself out of it, and I can feel the neurochemical change by thinking of somebody I'm really mad at, or someone or something that has made me intensely angry, and I'm instantly lifted out of sadness, grief, despair. The problem that most people don't see is that doesn't lift you to your highest level of performance. Like in, in, on a grading scale of A to F, like if you're in the, in the F emotionally, anger will, in, will instantly bring you up to a C level performance, maybe even B minus. Now you won't know how much more room there is at the top. All you know is in comparison, the anger pulled you out of your depths. So you're capable of much more, but if you got no way of knowing that, you don't know that, that the really the next level up is the state of flow is human beings highest performance level. Stephen Kotler's got a lot of research on it. People are doing stuff that they should not be able to do just because they've gotten into flow. That's highly positive. That ain't, there ain't no anger in flow. Flow is highly positive. It's borderline euphoria. You know, Evil Knievel crashed his motorcycle trying to jump the, the fountain at Caesar's Palace in 1970-something. Um, Mike, can't think of Mike's last name, before they tore the fountain down, an, an X Games athlete, does a backflip on his motorcycle over Caesar's Palace fountain. Flow. What are you capable of in flow? The first kid, and I again, it's in Kotler's book, The Rise of Superman, who jumped the Great Wall of China on a skateboard. Danny Way. Did it with a broken ankle. Crazy. Because he was in flow. Not only did he do it with a broken, he did it several times that day. He was in flow. Nobody had ever done that before, and he did it with injuries that should have put anybody else, you know, in, in a hospital bed. But he's in flow. It's highly positive. So... We don't know that if the anger has lifted us out of our depths. You can lift yourself out of the depths with anger. You probably can't lift yourself out of the depths as quickly with a positive emotion. So that, you know, there's a sequencing, there's a staging there. But you cannot get to your peak performance in a negative state of mind. And anger is a negative state of mind.
So as somebody who knows the power of emotional control, how do you get to your ideal state of mind? I've read waiting, um, not waiting for Superman, becoming the rise Superman, of Superman, the rise. Thank you. Stephen Kotler's book. I've read that I'm very familiar with the ideas that he puts out around flow. Um, but let's say that we're in a negotiating situation, our anxiety spikes massively, or we're in a big confrontation in a parking lot, anxiety's up. How do you bring that down, recenter, and get to your best self? You know, some, some of the, the mantras that you were talking about, you know, who am I? Remember who you are. That's a great mantra. You, ha you have to have, there has to be some preparation in advance. You know, and then you have to have found some success with it. You know, you're not going to try anything if you haven't applied it successfully. You're not going to try it when it's really important if you haven't applied it when the stakes are low. It's like, so what are you doing first thing in the morning? You know, am I lucky to be up or, oh, God, is it another day? Is it a day gift? What's the difference between adventure and ordeal? Only your, the way that you perceive it. I threw that out on my Instagram a couple of months back. You know, what's the difference between ad, uh, adventure and ordeal or stress and stimulation? You know, and I got a bunch of neuro, oh, stress is cortisol. You know, people want to give me that. I know the neuroscience. The answer is how you filter it completely. You know, how, how do you look at it? Is it happening for you or to you? Are you lucky to be here or, uh, or you're unlucky? I'm in a negotiation a couple of years ago with somebody whose values I detested. And thinking about this person made me angry every time. Is this hostage or business? Business negotiation. But you person, still person was a liar. Person, person lied, had no problem lying. And, uh, that, you know, it, I got an ex-girlfriend that once said to me, you'd sooner get your arm torn off than tell me a lie. And I remember thinking at the time, well, the words I find highly complimentary, but the way that you said it makes it sound <laughs> like an insult. Like that, you know, yeah, but wait a minute. You said that like it's a bad thing. So integrity is really important to me. So when I deal with somebody who lacks it, they're going to trigger me. And if they're triggering me negatively, I'm having trouble prepping for the conversation because I'm dumber when I'm angry. And then I remember the only reason this person is persistent in these negotiations is because my company is a success. And in point of fact, I'm lucky to be in this conversation. And as soon as I did that, I reframed it. I was like, I instantly, I found myself in a, in a different frame of mind. So, you know, you, you got to find a phrase. If Tony Robbins says, I think he's the guy that said, you know, does life happen for you or to you? Life is happening for you. For you. Like, wow, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. You know, however do you reframe that, which takes some practice. Pick, pick out your phrase. Practice it up a little bit. Because your, your negative circuitry is going to kick in. The, the default circuitry for human beings is negative. Interesting. We inherited from the caveman, and the optimistic caveman got eaten by the saber tooth, and the negative, pessimistic caveman made a run for it or killed it. But the optimistic guy was like, you know, yeah, you know, I, I got I know, this. I know, I, you know, this, this thing, it, it look, it's not, you know, it just needs How a hard hug. could it be? <laughs> How hard could it be? Just needs a hug. Yeah, so uh, uh, the negative caveman, the, we, we, we're gifted with the wiring of our ancestors, and the negative guys survived. It's 
interesting how much you've leveraged an understanding of human nature to get people where you want to go. I want to talk about some of your open-ended questions. I think these are really powerful. So the the way that why questions are accusatory, mm-hmm. but how questions invite people to do the thinking for you and explain that, like the explain the power of how. Yeah, it, well, it, uh, to use common, Kahneman's phraseology, it triggers slow thinking or in-depth thinking. You know, because pe- it's logistical. Uh, yeah. You know how how largely is implementation or logistical? Is another uh, uh, how's this going to get done? Um, it feels deferential. So I'm going to kill these motherfuckers if you don't give me twenty million dollars right now. And you say, "How am I supposed to do that?" Go to the bank. Call the president. Do whatever you need to do. This is somebody's life. Give me the twenty million right now. How am I supposed to do that right now? You want me to call the president? You want me to go to the bank? Do they not just keep How screaming? Am I to yes, do that right that's now? exactly what I want you to do. All they got to do is come down a little at a time. Now I'm not resisting. I'm in implementation, and it triggers in-depth thinking. And in point of fact, those are legitimate questions. You know, the, the ask a question that the, whether the other side likes it or not, is actually a legitimate question. Not resisting. I'm asking in a way where I'm deferential. I'm not saying I ain't doing it. I'm asking for your help. Now, how you respond to that is going to tell me where this is really going. You know, there's a 93% success rate means 7% of the time it ain't going to go anywhere. This is nothing but bad. I got to know which one I'm dealing with. And so, you know, my how and what questions early on and occasional, the, the strategical use of why, surgical use of why, I got to diagnose what I'm really dealing with. And I got to do it in a way where you're not feeling like you're being diagnosed. But, you know, because I, I got to do everything I can do to avoid triggering you, but I got I I to get a diagnostic on what I'm actually dealing with to begin with. And how do you handle telling people no in a way that doesn't shut them down. Yeah, you know, uh, a friend of mine here in town, Ned Coletti, used to be the GM for the Dodgers. Brilliant negotiator. Good guy. Like him a lot. Ned is still around. I'm still affiliated with the Dodgers. First year he was uh, GM, they went from worst to first. That's a sign of a capable GM. You know, and, and we were talking about this one time, and Ned said that someone had taught him to let out no a little at a time. And I'm like, that's exactly what we're doing. Like, you have to be able to say no to people. What your job is to not let them get blindsided by it, where they feel like they were clotheslined and caught off guard. So you let it out a little at a time. And how am I supposed to do that is really a way to get the other side thinking about the difficulty of the situation, about the difficulty of the ask, and it's the first way to Why start letting know. Why can't you just say that's really going to be hard? Further down the line, we're going to get there. But first, I really kind of need the how question is designed to get stop you in your track, your tracks, and get you thinking. It's calibrated, which is why we call them calibrated questions, 
to start to trigger a state change in the other side. Now, we got to let out a little more no and a little from our way as we go along. Then we got, we, we got a whole succession of ways to eventually, ultimately, if forced into it, to say no. Which then also is not no. It's no. But we don't need to go. Like if, if you hear no from me or my side, We've been hinting at it for a while. So you're not going to be cl- feel blindsided by it. You, you're gonna, yeah, and we're going to continue to demonstrate collaboration. Because, you know, I don't want to go all the way to now. If we're talking, there's a reason for us to talk. The adversary is the situation. So if there's a reason for us to collaborate and talk, well, we can both be better off. I also don't want to let out no too quickly because there might be a better way, and I want to discover that. So let's let me let me let me start telegraphing that there are problems here, inviting collaboration. See if we can tease out a solution before this thing goes down the tubes. Have you ever had a negotiator or a um, hostage taker give you an answer to something that you were like, "I actually don't have a rebuttal to that. We should try that." <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, I was. I, I'm running these scenarios through my head, and I'm like, "What would I do if they like offered a suggestion?" I'm like, "Yeah, like actually sounds." Maybe we should try that. <laughs> like, how do you, because there are scenarios where you end up paying apparently $20 million. Well, we, well first of all, it wasn't a U.S. that paid that or anybody on the U.S. side. So the U.S. would never do that? Uh, correct. US, the U.S. does not pay ransom. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be bait money go downrange. Meaning because, you give them money that you know you're going to take back? Or you're going to trace. Like, like money is ridiculously easy to trace, like ridiculously easy. And it can be a very smart move. It's like eject, injecting dye into their financial circulatory system. Mm. Where are they buying weapons? Who are they paying safe houses for? They got a larger criminal network. Terrorists are not supported by the Red Cross. They're supported by a larger criminal network of illegal arms dealers and illegal this and illegal that. And you want to know who they're buying their guns from. And the best way to find out who they're buying their guns from is to give them some money that you could trace and find out where it goes. Follow the money, as they said a long time ago in in the Watergate scandal. That's a tremendous investigative tool. And if you, there was in 2000, that was exactly what happened because there was a criminal gang out of Ecuador that had been taking hostages on oil platforms every year at about October. And they were a combination of former terrorists and criminals. And so the third time it went down, a payment was made because they, if they would assaulted the, the oil platform, they'd only got the kidnappers who were the lower end of the food chain. But they made a payment and they ended up dismantling the gang in its entirety and they never hit again. Oh. Over 50 people were rounded up. Because they were tracking the money. Tracking the money. The whole organization was dismantled as a result of the ransom payment. So it became a great way to take out a criminal organization that had been operating completely freely prior to that. And a rescue would have only taken out the bad guys on a platform. It would not have taken out the whole organization. They took the whole thing down, and these guys never resurfaced as an organization again. So going back to the magic words that you use as a negotiator, why is getting them to say no 
more important or better, much better, if I remember your words correctly, yeah. than yes. Yeah, it's it's shocking. Um, and a friend of mine that I'm flattered that we're acquainted, Andrew Huberman, Huberman Labs podcast. Know him well, amazing guy. Brilliant neuroscience stuff. Uh, met him for the first time recently. We're sitting down at lunch, and I'm like, all right, so I don't know what the neuroscience behind this is, but people feel safe and protected when they say no. They feel better. They're more likely to collaborate. And then plus what we that's know- so weird. What, the other thing that's crazy that we know for sure is, like when you're exhausted mentally, you could still say no. Mm. But yes is hard. Yes is hard, or even as answering how. Like, if, if, you, uh, if, if you're tired, and one of my colleagues did this to me recently, and I could instantly tell the difference. They wanted to follow up with me when I was exhausted, and I knew that if they'd asked me, what are you thinking, what, great question, triggered deep thinking, I didn't have the mental gas in the tank to answer that question. But they answered me a question that was built around no, and I went boom, 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 boom. I laid it all out. And I was like, wow. I don't, I don't know how that happens. I just know it does. And we've seen time after time, if I need to close a deal at all, especially if I know that you're tired, instead of saying, do you agree? Do you want to do this? Are you in favor of this? I say, do you disagree? Is this a bad idea? Are you against this? Is this ridiculous? And you'll either go, no, let's do it. Or you go, no, but here are the problems. And you'll lay them all out for me. And feel no obligation, which means you're going to lay them out to me honestly. Like if I say, do you agree with this? You're going to afraid to say yes, but here are the problems because you feel that yes is an obligation. And you're going to be worried about digging yourself deeper in by saying anything after that. But having said no, you feel you have no obligation. I think it might be that simple. So you will, you will lay the rest of the stuff out, not being worried about digging yourself into a hole. It's really interesting that some part of our brain is tracking the, even though it's not like obviously a contract, but that some part of our brain is like, yeah, we've just agreed to that. And now I have a sense of obligation and they have the right to like take me to task on it. It's right. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And we stumbled over that one by, by accident. And it is just the, the good and the bad about getting people to say no is it makes such a huge difference in all interactions that sometimes that's the only thing somebody learns. And we're like, look, there is so much more here. Like, I know you're making a lot more money now. And you're doing better than anybody that you see around you. But you're not doing as good as you could be doing, and you cannot stop there. A lot of people, I see it all the time. They just learn how to trigger no instead of yes. And they're instantly, significantly more successful. And they quit there. They don't keep going. All right. What then, if you were going to bring this all together, if no is that first bit that shows people like, whoa, you can frame this in a new way. What are the, the few key tenets of like, all right, if you had to bestow quickly upon somebody what the core tenets of the black swan way are. Yeah, let, you know, let the other side go first. Um, and then, you know, the cliche, the other side's got to talk five times as much as you. Not twice as much, five times as much. It doesn't mean that you go, uh, 
that you go mute. You drop in occasionally. You let the other person know that whatever they're thinking is, it's okay to share it. Like one of our favorite things, you got to have some go-to labels. Go-to labels? Yeah, label is one of our negotiation techniques. Seems like, sounds like, looks like, feels like. No matter what anybody says, you can say, seems like you had a reason for saying that. Like no matter what they say, I hate you and everything you stand for. Seems like you got a reason for saying that. It's disarming. They'll talk with you about it. I want to do business with you and I want to deal with you right now. Seems like I had a reason for saying that. Well, yeah, here's why I want to do business with you. Um, one, one of my son came up with, again, like brilliant guy. We, you know, we would not be our team without him. Clients call on a phone. Say, how are you today? How are you today is a diagnostic. They want to know if they could talk, if you're in a mood to talk about what they want to talk about. Brandon's response is, seems like you got something on your mind. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, because they've been, they've been planning this call. How are you today is not like genuinely how some people really want to know, but most people want to know, are you prepared to listen to what I have on my right. mind? How are you as a temperature check? Are you in a bad mood? Because I'm wasting my time. Are you in a good right. mood? We could talk. And the, the only pushback he ever got on that was he had a guy say, yeah, you know, there's stuff I want to talk about. Really, I want to know how you are today. And so Brandon said, yeah, I'm good, you know, we talked about it, and then they got down to business. So, you know, the more you encourage the other side to talk, the more likely it is that you're going to get to this moment of collaboration quicker. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. How do you get something better? You get the other side to talk. You spend a lot less time talking and appreciate that they're bringing something to the table that you could use. The black swan, the tiny little thing that's going to change everything. You trigger that, you're going to make great deals. And that's it. That's We've it. got our, our basic principles. Chris, I found your book just so interesting and it makes me want to really go back through this stuff over and over and over picking up the different using hows, watching out for your whys, getting people to know getting them to talk more um it's really incredible that this stuff works in the most tense situations possible yeah. that yeah. you can use it in the boardroom i am definitely going to be using it with my team with my wife uh it's it's about human wiring. Yeah. That's, that's what I find so interesting. About yeah, this. thank you. Pleasure, man. And I'd like to offer a way for people wanting more from the Black Swan group. How, how do they get it? You tell me. You know, we get, everybody's got a newsletter. Um, everybody's got a free newsletter. That's not what makes ours valuable. Ours is concise. Like most newsletters, you got 10 choices. Ours is complimentary, but the value is the fact that it's concise. You're going to get one scenario specific application and plus we got a whole library we got job negotiations in the past we got leadership application whatever you need so the black swan website is blackswanltd.com upper right hand corner of the, the home screen is a tab for the blog the blog is the edge sign up for the edge you get an email to you on a tuesday morning after you got monday behind you but it's concise and it's free and a lot of people get a long way it's a great compliment to the book. We got a bunch of other stuff that's free too. 
you, you, you take the free stuff, you know, buy the book, take the free stuff, see where that gets you. If it's for you, then you can dig in and learn more. Would it be crazy to get people to sign up for something free? <laughs> now, now we've got them. Now Why? we've got them. Somehow I'm compelled to say no. Right. And, and I feel so much better. I feel having safe. Said no. I feel I'm, secure. I feel safe. I have this feeling of safety now. <laughs> it's like drinking a Starbucks latte. There's a funny comedic video along those lines recently I saw. You, you know, you're safe if you're drinking a latte. The, the police aren't going to beat you up if you're, if you're drinking a Starbucks. That's the key. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to leave people with? They're going to the newsletter. They're going to sign up for The Edge. They're ready to rock and roll. Anything else? Go through your catalog of podcasts and go back and listen wow. to the stuff you That's haven't listened to yet. Very kind. I will say read your book, Never Split the Difference. It is phenomenal. Speaking of which, guys, the book really is amazing. The tactics, I haven't started deploying them yet, so I can't swear they work. But when you hear the stories... It is very compelling. And as I ran through them in my own mind, it actually did make me feel differently. Uh, so I invite you guys to try this stuff out. And like you said, don't just stop at getting people to say no, dive into this stuff. Because the ability to um, help people get to, and he, he's very careful to talk about this in the book, that you're not trying to get people into where they're losing, but you are, and you're not trying to get win-win either. He's careful to talk about that as well. Uh, but you're getting them to a place where they feel good at the end of the exchange. Um, it's really some pretty powerful insights into human nature. For that, Chris Voss, I thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, brother. And uh, for being a part of this. And to all of you at home, I hope that you enjoyed this and you got as much out of it as I have. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace. <laughs>